Hey everyone, it's John Kerwin here and I'm really excited as this is my podcast called Open Minded. This podcast is interviewing inspirational people from all walks of life. You know, I want to give you the real stuff that's happening every day in the minds of these leaders, how they stay well in high pressure roles, how they build resilience in themselves, how they look after their people, and how can you invest in yourself and your people to do mental well-being well. So this is JK and this is Open Minded. So let's go. Well, you know, in sport, we talk about two peats, three peats, and I'm really, really lucky to have my first two peat on the uh, podcast today. So I'm lucky to have the amazing um, Dr. Steve Henshaw back. Now, we had an amazing conversation with Steve earlier this year about his fascinating story, which was well worth a listen. And you should, uh, if you haven't, go and have a listen to that. But this is the second chapter. I mean, Steve was so interesting the first time that we spoke about his personal story. So, um, but we really also wanted to delve into the workplace well-being. Both Steve and I are very passionate about how we solve some of these mental health issues. And we both believe that, you know, the, the workplace is somewhere where we need to implement uh, mental health well-being, understanding, knowledge, and then tools and techniques to, to um, get yourself sort of in a great space. So, um, you know, Steve is a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, um, where he's the department chair from 2004 to 2011, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral science at UC San Francisco. He received his AB from Harvard, and after directing school programs and residential summer camps for children with specialist needs, his, and then his doctorate in clinical psychology from UCA, UCLA. His research focuses, and this is incredibly interesting because something that I think all our children need to know, on developmental psychopathology. So clinical interventions with children, adolescents with attention deficits, hyperactivity, and mental illness stigma. Steve has authored over 370 articles and chapters plus 12 books. His memoir, Another Kind of Madness, A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness, was awarded best book in the autobiography memoir by the American Book Fest in 2018. His work is featured regular in the media, including New York Times, Washington Post, Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal, Today Show, CBS Evening News, ABS World News Tonight, CNN, and many more. So, like I said, in part one, we spoke about the journey. And Steve, fantastic to see you, my friend. Um, I get awe-inspired every time I read out your CV, man. Like that is that is unbelievable. But the human side you you bring to it is something I think is fundamentally important. But what I wanted to talk about in part two was, um, you know, you talk about stigma and the physiology of understanding what's going on in your brain helps free us. And I think that was really really important for me. I thought I was going insane and we've talking about spoken about this in the past, but when I actually understood the science, yeah. um, it helped free me. I thought, oh, I am just an animal and this is what's happening to me. What we're talking about um, today though is the workplace. And one of the things we need to help drive is a culture of well-being. I I mistakenly or maybe not mistakenly say that, you know, 
35 years ago, Bill Gates came across the Canadian border with Microsoft Windows in his back pocket saying, this is going to change the world, you know, and it did. And then I think Steve Jobs jumped up and said, I'm going to put a personal computer in everyone's hands. So we've got cell phones, we've got computers. But I personally believe that the future of uh, wellness, the future of actually productivity in the workplace is how we treat mental health in the workplace. And I know you've been studying it. How do people look at this problem now? How do we need to bring it into the workplace and make it normal? So uh, thanks. Uh, it's great to be back. See you again, Sir JK. And I do a lot of work with kids and teens and young adults and then work with older adults. Because when you do longitudinal studies, follow people across their lifespan, kids turn into adults. It's an amazing thing. So <laughs> I always think of, because it's sort of my first love is developmental and clinical psychology, how can schools be more accepting and open? And of course, that would segue into the workplace. What's the history of schooling in many cultures? Exclusion. You're with it, you're smart, you can pay attention, or you're out. One size fits all. And in various nations over the last half century, there's been an opening up that all kids deserve a free and appropriate education in a public school. And this has meant that we think differently about separation in special ed. We think about mainstreaming. We think about coping skills for kids. We think about classrooms in which a kid with ADHD, which I study a lot, doesn't maybe need to sit for seven hours consecutively, but it can get up and move around. There's activity-based projects. It requires a different level of education for regular education teachers to understand that and I think this is really important in schools. Some schools and classrooms are very formal, sit still, hands folded. Some are more informal. There's a variety of styles. And then there's also this dimension of unstructured versus structured. In unstructured schools, kids kind of do what they want. In structured schools, there's lessons and there's expectations. It turns out, I think this is kind of intriguing, that the combination of an informal setting where you don't have to mind your P's and Q's every second, when that's paired with structure. So the lessons are provided uh, and, and the reminders for homework on the board and on the website and by spoken directions, when it's known what the behavioral expectations are. So you don't have to be a perfect angel all day, but you have a sense of what the expectations are. These are the kind of environments that make kids with all kinds of disabilities, physical, emotional, mental, mental disorders thrive. And so let's go up to the workplace. Traditionally, the view has been, we're providing you a wage. We've got a service, we've got a widget, we've got steel, we've got whatever we're making and we need to sell it. And you better darn well fit into that workplace culture. Well, guess what? People are different. Some people are quite focused and some people are distracted and that can be a strength in certain professions and not in others. Some people are rule abiders and some people are mavericks. When you sum up the number of adults who will experience in their lifetime a mental disorder, it's not five or 10%, it's not 15 or 20%, it's 30 to 40 and even 50% depending on how wide you make that boundary. 
So if we're to believe that everybody must fit the straight and narrow path at the factory assembly line, in the corporate office, doing what you're told, A, we're, at a, we're a tech innovation-based economy around most of the developed world now, we need innovators. B, by forcing people into conformity, we're not going to benefit from the skills and talents of many people. And C, if a person has a diagnosable mental disorder, if we threw everybody with those conditions out, we wouldn't have a workforce left. We need to change the environment. We need to make it acceptable to talk about stress and anxiety and problems, both as strengths to build attentional focus, organizational skills, coping, mindfulness, and if the disability is serious enough, what services and supports do you need? Because again, if, the, if it's my way or the highway from the boss's perspective, you're in or you're out, think of the human potential we lose. All we need to do is think about people with bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, teens and adults with attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Big thrust in the United States now, especially here in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, is to get young adults, middle-aged adults with autism spectrum disorders, getting them jobs in tech because those individuals tend to be very focused and very analytic and they get a lot more work done than kind of uh, uh, lazy, lazy ass professors like me, excuse my <laughs> French. So if we saw people's unique skills and talents and gave them the support they needed and had an inclusionary ethos and atmosphere, that would go a long way. So th this is really interesting because I also often talk about, and, and this is JK data, so there's no truth to this, so it's a question. I often think that, you know, when you talk about mental illness, there, there's there's a line where, you know, where let's let's talk about ADHD. And it's really interesting that um, it's being it's being diagnosed in way more adults nowadays. That was just missed when they were kids, first question. The second thing is, I think I'm a little bit ADHD, but possibly not in the medical category. So are those things true? Are we just getting more diagnosed with stuff that we missed as kids? Or how does that work? Because we want to integrate everyone, right? Yep. So when I was in graduate school a long time ago now, I was basically taught you had autism spectrum disorder or you didn't. You had what was then called hyperactivity, now ADHD, or you didn't. You had bipolar disorder, you didn't. And what do we say now? It's the autism spectrum disorders. You're on the bipolar spectrum. You're on a spectrum of very good focus and organization to being more distractible. There's no magic place on the scales that we use to say, Sir JK, you've got ADHD and I clearly don't or vice versa. It's a matter of degree. It's like going to the doctor, getting that sphygma monobar around your arm and is 140 over 90 hypertension or not? Well, interestingly in the United States 20 years ago, that would have been considered mm, a little high, a borderline watch out. And today it's considered hypertension because we know people with moderately high ratings, if they don't get diet and exercise and medications if needed, it's gonna cut off years of their life. So, so 
it's arbitrary in some ways as to who has the condition or not, which in some ways means we're all on various spectra of, and depending on the situation we're in, I can be more focused than not. I can be sadder than others, but beyond a certain point of severity, serious depression, which you clearly know about and I know about, bipolar disorder in the case of my dad, very severe ADHD or autism spectrum disorder, services are gonna help bring that person function. So even though it's on a continuum, at some point we have to make a decision to treat. But, so let me morph you. I'm about to, I'm gonna tell you to give up your, uh, your job as an amazing professor. And I'm gonna employ you as the head of human resources for a massive um, American company. And you're in charge of implementing um, a work environment that's going to help promote everybody's well-being from the person that can concentrate for 300 million hours right through to me yeah. who's got the concentration of an ant. So, and this is some of the challenges, right, that these right. big HR leads are doing. So you spoke about it before. You said the person that can't, um, you know, the, the loose school that has some structure is the best place for the person who's a bit loose, not yep. too much structure. So how, do you, how does the modern... HR or business CEO that really wants to promote great mental health, where does he start? Well, that's a fascinating question. And I will say that if you were the head of the search firm or search committee that gave me that job, you'd be fired because I don't think I'd be a very good CEO. <laughs> that's another story. So let's go back to school because that's where my sweet spot is with kids. What's the best school climate for all kids? Everybody has a chance to learn. Yet people who don't see as well as others or people with hearing uh, disabilities may need assisted communication devices or braille or a classroom where you can touch a lot of things and learn uh, in that way for a visually impaired person. The idea is we make the environment as inclusive as possible so that everybody, every school kid's strengths are uh, not only cherished, but enabled. Now at the workplace, where would we start? And I think we might have even discussed this for just a few seconds in, in uh, uh, podcast number one, which is when I was on a panel a few, well, two or three years ago here in the US on workforce, Ariana Huffington, the inventor of the Huffington Post was on. She's on to other things now. And she gave me an idea that I had never really thought of before. Why are we so obsessed when something doesn't work out with an employee, they decide to leave or they're terminated. We always do an exit interview. Well, what led up to this? Could we have avoided it? Here's their severance package and move on. Why don't we do entrance interviews? Why don't we sit down with an employee and say, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What's gonna help you thrive and have that be part of the plan? Now. Is that gonna eliminate stigma? Maybe not, the person has the job, but maybe they don't want their employer to know right off the bat until they've got six months under their belt, right? To make sure there's a little more security. I don't believe this entry interview would be about disclosing, well, what's your blood pressure? And you know, how do you handle stress? But it's a, it's a strengths-based approach so that everybody's on the same page of, how can we make this new employee thrive? And how can that employee's thriving help our company, our corporation, our business work well? That's number one. Number two, it's an atmosphere where people are encouraged not to keep secrets and falsely show strength. 
you know from your own story about being a great athlete and high expectations. And I can't put it in the words you would, but that probably wasn't the best thing to let teammates and coaches know earlier in your career. But there came a point where there was no choice any longer. You needed help. Depending on the size of the firm, small businesses all the way to huge corporations, an HR, human resources division, that encourages people to speak up about adaptations. Ergonomic chairs. Nobody talked about ergonomic chairs 30 years ago and how many people have low back pain as a result. If we have a culture where it's not you or I or somebody else has an illness of low back pain, we can support everybody's backs better and have everybody thrive more. A culture of acceptance, of of disclosure, of taking suggestions, and then moving on to point C. What are the accommodations that someone with ADHD or major depression or PTSD, I'm not gonna go through the whole list, really benefit from? Well, it's pretty clear that if I've got a serious physical disability, the company's need, gonna need to build ramps if they don't. And they're gonna have to widen the bathroom doors. Those are often quite expensive uh, changes in the architecture of, of the facility. If I'm pretty darn depressed and I'm having trouble functioning as well as I could at home and in the workplace, what I probably need is a flexible schedule. Maybe I stay an hour later and have my lunch hour and go see my shrink, my psychiatrist, my therapist, my counselor. In addition to participating in stress reduction and mindfulness and exercise programs that the company would set up. I'm being a bit all over the map, but I think what you're getting at is schools for kids and workplaces for adults, the more inclusive they can be, the more health promoting they can be, the more the atmosphere is one of disclosure and we're all in this together rather than we're healthy and you're sick and you're out. That's what I'm talking about. I also think that the, the, the stigma side of it um, is the main cause for people not disclosing because yeah. what, what I found out investigating you know my illness was yeah it, it brought me my illness but it gives me an incredible amount of strengths if i'm prepared to accept the other side of possibly being on some of those spectrums yes you know the, the the other question i was going to ask you is a lot of the business people that i'm leading with and talking to i say to them we don't want you to be the expert you don't need to be the expert right and because a lot of people are scared to open up that conversation in case it leads down a pathway where they That's don't right. have the expertise. So where, where would you advise people to start breaking down the stigma and having this conversation? Because what people are scared of is if I declare that I'm depressed, that I might need to do a few yeah. things differently. So what do you suggest the leader does? So at UC Berkeley, where I spend a lot of my time teaching, it's a big undergraduate as well as graduate institution. And over the last few years, the administrators and the health services and the mental health department at UC Berkeley have tried to get professors and graduate student instructors, teaching assistants, more openly trying to help students who are struggling. And many students are struggling. And with the pandemic and lockdown, they're struggling even more to open the conversation up. So, UC Berkeley has royal blue and gold. They're great colors. 
unlike our arch rival Stanford that has Cardinal Red, Boo Red, Go Blue and Gold. So, so why, why am I getting into the sports business now? Because what the administration has done is put out a blue folder that really talks about how to instruct well in class and a gold folder for how to encourage mental health and disclosure and getting students accepted. And so everyone has a gold folder now. They used to pass out gold folders and now they're all online, of course. And the gold folder, when it first came out, professors of chemistry or English literature say, well, I'm, I didn't get a PhD in psychology. I didn't go to medical school and become a psychiatrist. How do you expect me to talk to students? And the, the simple answer is, students are hungry for support and feedback and guidance. If a professor, so I'll take the professor's perspective as well as the CEOs, doesn't need to go back to grad school or med school for four or five years, but has the attitude of introducing a conversation in office hours, not just about how did the last homework session go or how did you do in the midterm, but how are you doing? Mm. And sometimes that simple, how are you doing in a culture that promotes that gets people talking about, you know, I'm pretty stressed in my calculus class or boy, that last team meeting I had really laid me low. The CEO or the professor doesn't need to be a mental health expert. They need to be empathic and listening and listening for those cues and clues that may say at the end of that conversation or in a you know, repeat conversation not too long later, I think there's some things that our business or our university offers that might be of support to you. And you could list those off and you have kind of a resource catalog either in the gold folder or online. It's about human communication and interaction. It's not about having to be the world's greatest expert in psychology or psychiatry. So those are the things I would think about because that kind of support is crucial. Last podcast, and I'll just take us back in time for not more than a minute. When I was growing up in Columbus, Ohio, my father a philosophy professor, my mother an English instructor, wonderful childhood except that my dad would disappear and vanish for weeks months or at one point a year at a time didn't know he was going into some of the country's worst mental hospitals i needed someone to talk with my parents had been disallowed by my dad's lead doctor from ever discussing mental illness because my sister and i would have been destroyed if there'd been a school guidance counselor if there'd been the parent of a friend but back in the day you didn't talk about mental illness at neighbor houses, right? And let's say I was a bit older. If there had been a coworker or an HR person at work to just encourage dialogue. And we talked about a form of family therapy invented by my colleague, Dr. William Beardsley of Harvard Medical School that gets kids and families to talk about depression or bipolar disorder or stress opening up that discussion reduces that child and adolescent's risk for developing a mood disorder herself or himself by 30% over four years. It's not all about medication. It's not all about formal therapy. It's about opening up so that you're not keeping it bottled inside. So it's a long-winded answer to the question of what should the CEO, what should the manager do? Encourage dialogue in a non-judgmental way. Everybody will benefit from that. Okay, so let's let's um, 
let's let's play a little bit of a role. I'm JK student. I'm pretty dumb, as you know. I've got my dumb shark. I think we've spoken about those in the past. And I'm coming to you as the professor of yeah. science because you've so brainy, you've actually gone away in the summer and not only a genius in psychology, you've just got a science degree. And I say, uh, I'm struggling to concentrate. I'm struggling to, to, you know, I'm getting really down. I don't think I'm good enough to do this. Yeah. In the three things, which I think were amazing answers, support, feedback, and guidance, yeah. what 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 would you say in the support mode? What would you say in the feedback mode? And what would you say in the guidance mode? So the initial, the initial support involves a lot of active listening. Sometimes professors have group office hours. Sometimes a bunch of employees are together talking with the supervisor. You may have to use your judgment to say, um, or maybe send a text, let's talk one-on-one -on -one soon because maybe the person's not comfortable talking in front of other students or other employees. And then when you have that one-on-one -on -one time, active listening. So you are having, JK, some trouble concentrating and you feel like you're just not living up to your potential in a couple of these classes or on the job. Could you tell me more about that? Has this been going on a long time? Certain point in the semester? Open up, don't provide too many. You don't wanna provide questions like, Yes or no. It's like the bad reporter after a sports game. Didn't you feel that you had the team licked from the beginning? Well, all you can say is yes or no. The good reporter says, tell me how y'all prepared for this match. Right? So the support is asking open-ended questions that encourage dialogue and listening. The great Carl Rogers, a former psych uh, psychologist in the United States years ago, said that sometimes you have to listen with that third ear. Well, most people don't have a third ear, but what it means is you're listening with your heart and your mind as well as your ears. When you said active listening, what does that mean to you? Sorry, I, don't, I just wanted to- Oh, no, that's great. It means that you're not going on your preconceived notion or the first thing the person has said. Oh, JK, say so you're really struggling in this class. You feel like you're struggling in others. Your concentration's poor. So I'm gonna ask you, tell me more about how you're doing more generally. How are things in the dorm? How are things at home? How, how do you think this stress level compares to, to the way you were a month ago or a year ago? Draw the person out. People like to tell their stories in stories rather than facts. And maybe I get kind of this act of listening with the third ear. JK has been struggling for ever since grade school. Now he's in college or graduate school. And this is a long pattern of feeling really low self-worth versus JK's been thriving uh, and uh, he lost a relative to COVID and his uh, concentration has been really down uh, and his uh, partner isn't, they're not getting along so well. Now I'm thinking, actively listening, maybe some crisis support right now would help him out rather than saying, boy, you need to get on medication tomorrow. Not, not that I'd say that anyway, right? So I actively listen, and then I'm going to support. Have you talked to anyone about this? Oh, you're pretty ashamed to do that, or you don't want to at the job, or you've told a couple of close friends, but you'd never tell anyone else. Well, now that we have this communication between us, I'm trying to support and guide. I'm really tempted to think that you need more support. And I'd like to work with you. We could do it now for the next few minutes or you could come back or we could text or email.
confidentially about the kind of support you think, think might be really helpful to you. At the same time, my general support might include, here's what we have at our workplace. Here's the meditation mornings, not medication, meditation mornings we have. Here's the stress reduction. Here's the exercise program we encourage. What do we know from every study ever, ever done with every species that we know of on the planet? Exercise helps you physically and cognitively. Does that mean exercise alone will cure severe depression? No, but it's part of a holistic package. So part of your support and guidance may be to let the employee know, let the student know, in the, in the first case we were talking about, just what programs exist. And of course, when you're pretty down on yourself and the world, the last thing you want to do is kind of get up out of your chair and get motivated to do things. And that's where a referral to the counseling services at the school or to the HR's list of therapists and counselors in the region who could work with a person. You don't have to have them memorized, but you know that's a resource you can go to when you get back in touch with that student or employee. The, um, so the interesting thing is how we, as a society, are tending to wear um, stress and anxiety as a badge of honor. Oh, I'm busy. I've got 200 emails. I don't have time. Should I miss my son's footy game because I was so busy? You know, um, how, how do we start changing that? How do we start saying, actually, people, you know, what, 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 what has brought us to this, you know, point? Well, if, if I had the answer to that question, I would be winning Nobel Prizes in many fields. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a social, cultural, historical, political analysis. But let's face it, everybody's stressed. Everybody's feeling pressure to do more and more in less and less time. Does the internet and social media feed into that? Or does it, were the internet and social media needed to help solve that? <laughs> Probably a bit of both. And again, going back to kids, kind of my, my first love professionally, kids have to start reading and writing, forget first grade, forget kindergarten, whatever you call it over in New Zealand. In the preschool years, there's pressure to achieve ever earlier. Getting into the best universities is more and more students are applying. The slots have either lessened or are staying flat the pressure to achieve, the pressure to, and especially if you're a girl, and I've written about this in my book called The Triple Bind, Saving Our Teenage Girls from Today's Pressures, especially for a girl or a woman at the workplace, not only do you have to be a great efficient worker, but you've also got to be the caretaker for your family and other people around you in the workplace. Oh, and you really have to kind of have the right weight and body shape and facial features. You've got to look good and effortless while you're doing it. These are impossible pressures. Even for guys who don't have those kinds of pressures, how do you play multiple sports? How do you do well in multiple subjects? The homework loads are bigger and bigger. How, well, what gives first? Sleep. Because you're texting people all the time anyway, and then you're getting your homework later on, or you're getting to your kind of life after work later on. Where's any time for relaxation? Or where's any time to make up for lost time with the second job you need to help support the family? When sleep goes, and this is another hugely important topic, 
there's many features not good to ha not having enough sleep. And we know that it hurts memory and it's hard to attend the next day, et cetera, et cetera. But what's less known is, is that people who are sleep deprived can hardly remember any positive feelings they've had over the last while, but they remember every negative one and magnify it. Sleep deprivation forces a kind of negative headset, which is exactly what you don't need if you're at risk for anxiety and depression. So we get this huge vicious cycle. How are we gonna let everybody know employers, employees, CEOs, prime ministers and presidents, school district superintendents and teachers. We're all working really hard. Do you have to be perfect all the time? If you do and you have that feeling, you're going to drive yourself onto a treadmill that's not going to have a good result. Let's have people thrive. I'm not saying uh, let's ease off the expectations. I mean, it's an information-rich world. We've got climate change to solve. We've got racism to solve. We've got huge problems in our world. But that doesn't mean we have to drive ourselves to distraction every day, because then we're going to be no good to anybody. What, what was the biggest thing that you... I understand the sleep thing. I'm big on that. I'm a big uh, lover on that as well. Um, so I often talk about Thrive. Yeah. What would you instigate in the workplace? What would you encourage in the workplace to get people from? Because what I've noticed in the workplace with all this time, um, you know, pressure on us and, you know, yeah. I, I get people to put up their hands if they've got more than 20 emails and then, you know, put their hands up if they've got more than 50 or 100. You know, I was sitting next to this guy uh, before lockdown on the plane and he was looking at his phone and he had 1200 unread messages, you know, and I, and I just thought, wow. So what, what would be some of the psychological things you'd encourage to thrive besides sleep? Okay. I get the sleep thing. The first thing everyone should do is do whatever you need to do to learn how to sleep well. But after that in the workplace, how would you go about this, this, this time restraints? Sleep, and I'll put with that diet and exercise all in the same, take care of yourself. And that's part of the question you're getting at now. How do you compartmentalize? Mm. If you're taking work home with you every night and there's problems and how are you going to sleep? And you're too worried to exercise. So some days are better for me than others. And I'm imagining for you too. Some days you've kind of hit some good marks, made some good progress on a project, gotten some time in for exercise, had a good meal, and sleep comes well. And other days, it's like the worry cycle never stops. How can we, through meditation, how can we, through making a contract with yourself that you're not going to work more than X hours a day after work on work? How can we also, and I think this is a different but very important aspect, so many of us are lonely at school and in the workplace. It's individual accomplishment and achievement and nobody's there to support us. People tend to thrive when there's class projects at school. People tend to thrive when there's group efforts in the workplace where everybody's input is valued, not just what the boss or the Uber boss says must need to be done. And this is what sort of the mythology, but partly it's true for some of the big tech firms these days. 
having an environment where you're allowed to be creative and having work teams work to solve problems with one another, not to have this vertical hierarchy where you're pushing all the stress down onto the lowest paid workers. If everybody feels that they've got an investment in how the whole group does, that's what promotes thriving because you're in it for yourself and for the team. If you've played team sports, we know that that's one of the greatest feelings you can have is all for one, one for all, and that my efforts are going to a greater good. Now, in a huge workplace, that's hard to do. Maybe it's got to be divisions or subdivisions or subprojects. Thriving means setting limits on yourself to stop the stress and find good ways to de-stress. And it also means encouraging in the workplace teams with responsibility for their own workload and time and structure so they've got input so that everybody's thriving, not just doing a job because the boss told me to. I met this amazing um, business person once. I've been very fortunate to meet a wide range of people. And this guy was incredibly successful, but it had some really interesting, um, sad things in his life. And he, when I spoke to him about it, he had this incredible ability to compartmentalize. Mm. And that mm. was his X factor, he believed, and I believed as well. Can you learn to compartmentalize? Is it, some, is it a skill we should be teaching? Why, that's a very good question. I think some people are more prone to it than others, kind of the personality and the genes you were born with and the upbringing you had. We know that for people with ADHD, and I do some work in this area, who kind of by definition aren't the world's most organized people, they'll be on a project for eight hours and then realize that they skip breakfast, lunch, and most of dinner. And then it's called hyper-focus. So ADHD involves not just the inability to pay attention, but sometimes it's hard to regulate it. So what are we going to do to help people get to the place where they can say, I've had it up to here, the employees I'm supervising or the employers or managers supervising me have just expected too much. I've got four digits of unopened emails in my inbox. I'm gonna need to find a way, and we can teach organizational skills for people with ADHD, it's very important. I think we could teach people, it's more of an emotional than just a cognitive task. What are your priorities? Are you okay with saying to your supervisor, I'm so <laughs> underwater, whatever the phrase is right now, could I talk with you about a plan to work my way out of this? Because if you feel overwhelmed night after night, sleep's going to go and everything's going to go. So it's about learning to say, I've done enough today. I'm watching sports on the television. I'm watching that limited series on the streaming device right at home. And I'm not going to worry about anything else until the morning. Or it's depending on who you live with and who your loved ones are making time to do fun things so that every day isn't just more stressful than the next. I wish I would do what I'm saying consistently with myself. <laughs> because it seems that the more you do, the more there is to do. And I think we can both teach some emotional compartmentalizing. 
you've got to cut yourself some slack, JK. I got to cut myself some slack here, Steve. I'm going to do as much as I can. I'm going to take a good clean break and I'm going to deal with it fresh tomorrow. Now, sometimes what I do is when it's getting on to evening, I don't want to wake up with a big load. So I'll just crunch emails for half an hour, get my inbox down. And I'm proud to say right now that I have eight unopened uh, emails in my inbox because I don't want to get that load up every day. Other people, I will mention no names of colleagues, but close colleagues of mine, uh, maybe their employers shouldn't know this, when they get above a thousand, they just hit delete all, saying, I guess if people really want me that much, they'll get back in touch with me. Now, I wouldn't recommend that for everyone, but you know what I'm saying. At some point, you're going to lose the war if you're fighting too many battles at once. Cut yourself some slack, know what gets you happy and thriving, and apportion your time and what, what do we know is a trigger for, as well as a consequence of depression? Rumination. You go over and over and over the cruddy thing you did at work or the wrong thing you said on that date or whatever it is. And that's a, that's a treadmill. Cut out the rumination and try some mindfulness meditation. Try some positive activities in your life where you're not going to let work intrude. Those are helpful things. So what I what I learned from from that is that and 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 I hear this all the time. Um, you know, I don't have time. I'm rushing from one thing to the next. So what you're saying is we can all be like that, but take control and plan it a bit more. I'm going to do my emails for half an hour. Then I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to go home and I'm going to stop. And that will teach you if you stick to those rules. Compartmentalization, right? Yeah, I, I think it can. Now, that's easier said than done because oh, emotionally you may be, oh, I feel guilty. I should be doing it. But you know what? Happiness has a way of interceding on sadness if you practice it enough. You get used to being happy and thriving more than so many of us are used to being stressed all the time. It's taking some control. Now, some jobs are easier to do that with than others. As a professor, I know when I have to teach. But I can set my own time and meeting with students or running my studies. Some work, you don't have as much control over your time, but you do have control over talking with supervisors and fellow employees and compartmentalizing, compartmentalizing as best you can. What's the old saying? Don't go down with the ship. If you go down with the ship, everybody loses. The, the, the one thing you spoke about that I'm really intrigued. So I've often spoken about my sharks, you know, my dumb shark. Um, you know, my imposter shark. Um, but another one that's really, really interesting is is a guilt shark. And, yeah. and I often talk about guilt and why we feel it and how come we feel it and how can we control it. And I know that you've been where I've been at with, with your mental health, so you would have examined it, but you've also studied it. Guilt is this amazing thing that drives us to do you know, why, why would we feel guilty about not answering an email or you might have had one glass of wine too many and you feel guilty the next day? Where does that come from and how can you can take control? Well, I wish I had clear, definitive answers. And I think it's a little bit different for everybody. I'll start with myself. If you heard the last podcast I was in, I'm glad to be the first two people. Makes me proud. Um, <laughs> 
when I was a little boy and my dad would be absent for those long periods of time and mom couldn't say anything about it, dad couldn't say anything about it when he returned, I was pretty shut down inside. School and sports were my refuge. What was I going to do? How was I going to get out of this feeling that if I didn't behave better, and as I got older and my dad told me a story, if I don't solve what they thought was schizophrenia, it was clearly bipolar disorder. I diagnosed it when I was 22. If I don't solve those problems, why can I do better than anybody else in my family? We call that survivor guilt. Why was I the one to survive that car crash? Why was I the one to survive, survive the uh, natural disaster no one else did? It's a feeling that you kind of have to keep yourself down. Otherwise, you'd be doing better than somebody who wasn't doing as well. It's not a good feeling to have. And I think a, a more, uh, a shallower kind of guilt, but still a very important one is, I don't wanna let anybody down. Who, who, what would they think of me? What would they think of a person who didn't answer an email within 45 seconds? Well, they probably think that person's running a normal, healthy life. I don't expect that. <laughs> it's trying to get the inner critic outside your head and maybe sitting across for it and you say, you know what, critic? I don't have to do it that way all the time because I can't thrive if I feel obligated to do someone else's beckoning and calling every second. Now, the interesting thing it, it, it meant to me getting back to the workplace, we, yeah. we, we, we talk about leaders leading, showing, right? Lead, show, care, we, we talk about it. Yeah. Um, you know, what would your advice be to someone who's a little bit scared? They know that their people are struggling. They know that they want to help, but they're just a little bit scared of getting out of their depth because talking about guilt, talk about risk, you know, if, if I'm, the, if I'm the, 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 the head of HR and I'm, you know, I'm right. relatively new to it, man, I don't want to make myself look like a bit of a spoon by not knowing this shit. So, <laughs> you know, the lead show care, what would your advice be to people to, to take it and just dip their toe into what you're so knowledgeable about. So remember a few minutes ago, I mentioned entry interviews, not just exit interviews. What about mid-course interviews? Mm. UC Berkeley now, not for the students I teach, but for the employees I hire, has now an enforced three times a year sit down with the new hire or the mid-career hire to talk about the initial goals and objectives we set up, what's going well, what's getting in the way. It's not judgmental. It doesn't go in the person's chart that they were, you know, had a complaint. It's a check-in to make sure that employer and employee are on the same page. And the employee feels safe enough to say, you know, um, things are going pretty well, but when I have to interact with that group from the next department that always squashes everything we want to do, they make me feel like I'm a jerk. They make me feel like I'm raising stuff. Now I know what that employee feels. Now I know it's both a personal and a structural issue. So I'm going to go up the chain to my boss or my superior and say, how are we as a company going to deal with that other unit or other company that's squashing our productivity and that employee's self-worth? 
And I can go to the employee and say, you know, we got several people like you. I wonder if we ever might have a group sit down and talk about how to problem solve this. It's no, it's not one size fits all. It's knowing where you are in the hierarchy of the organization. And of course, the more horizontal organizations are the better rather than that strict verticality we talked about before. And it's knowing where to make a system change and it's knowing when to refer and it's being supportive. And again, interim check-ins. I, I, I've when Berkeley first started doing this right before the pandemic, I thought, oh boy, what a waste of time. And now with my employees, we look forward to problem solving because it's not, oh, the employee's afraid to complain or I'm I don't want to say, oh, y'all, y'all, chin up, you can do fine. When it's a problem solving mutual approach, everybody wins. Nice. I like that. Um, when, when I was unwell, um, I had no idea about um, psychological tools that can help me better compartmentalize relax that the best thing I the first thing and one of the best things I learned was breathing yeah. what what was the greatest psychological tool um, that you've learned that you put in every single day that helps you deal with modern day stress and pressure if I can get some aerobic exercise in early in the day is better because I feel better all day even at the end of the day I feel, I feel in my head, the stress kind of go away. Maybe that's endorphins everybody talks about, right? Depends how hard you work out. You know, it's a different if a two hour workout versus 30 minutes. But it also, when you're concentrating on your body, whether through breathing, whether through meditation, whether through treadmilling or ellipticaling or running or lifting weights, it's very hard when you're exerting like that to ruminate and obsess. And I think it's a skill of getting out of your own head. And I think for me, just the sheer joy of feeling so good after exercise. And it also lets me know, I'm not gonna spend all day and night working. I've never pulled an all-nighter in my life, even as a student. I think I would fall apart and couldn't function. I'm not the world's calmest guy. I'm not the world's most regular guy. My dad had classic bipolar disorder. I've got some of those genes. I was a kid who didn't know what was going on as a kid. But I really try, JK, to take care of myself each day so that I don't get into that. I don't want to get steamrolled at the end of a day, end of a week, end of a month. Nobody wins. Uh, another interesting thing for me is how slow society has changed. So um you know the nine to five the hour for lunch all that sort of stuff that is so antiquated now right and yet our guilt is associated you know you can work till 10 o'clock at night you feel guilty if you don't turn up at 8 a.m the next morning right. so now you've just finished uh working for this big company you've just been elected um to the presidency of the united states and you get the choice to change how the workday um should be planned because what amazes me is why don't we let you run at work why don't we let you take those times off right. to actually do those types of things how would how would the perfect mental health well-being day look for you in the work in the workspace well i'm going to again make an analogy back into schools back in the u.s which i know better than other countries it was the one room schoolhouse out on the plains 
And then it was the factory-like schoolhouse and the Industrial Revolution, right? Kids of all ages had to sit still for six hours a day and learn the same lessons in the same order and not raise a peep. Is that how people best learn? No. I mean, some very controlled kids might find that structure encouraging. Most people learn when they're interested, when they get basic skills, and they can thrive. In the workplace, part of the answer to your question is, the pandemic has already helped solve some of those problems. It's hard to know that we will ever go back in the developed world and the third world to this, back to the one-room schoolhouse or back to the nine to five and 12 to 12.45 lunch hour. A lot of workers aren't just gonna do that. A lot of work these days is information and tech-based, not making steel anymore the way they used to do in Pittsburgh, right? The, the big steel city in the United States. And if we could allow the way we do in this sort of informal schooling for kids to set some or more of their own pace and walk around when they need to, still with structure, if we could allow workers and teams at work to set their own goals so that you don't have to stay up till all hours and then get up at six um, just to prove you're, uh, you're tough, who wins from that? Everybody just gets exhausted. And we all know that that doesn't really help the company's goals, right? It seems kind of artificial. And part of this rat race we're all in now is we have to do things just because that's the way they were always done. I guess it's polite to respond to a letter. Well, you get a letter from the Pony Express every week. It's probably nice to write back the next week. You get 50 emails in an hour. Do you have to respond to everyone? You do nothing else all day long. Let's, let's not just be polite for the sake of being polite. Let's be good to each other and not have to drive ourselves mad with guilt. So the more the workplace is open, the more that you can group people into their, how they work mentally, right? So not the stereotypical nine to five and everyone should get it done. If you can have more honesty, group those people together, get them to uh, co-design how they want to work. Because I even, you're right, COVID's, you know, some people um, don't ever want to go back to work. Others exactly. are really missing it. So exactly. you've just got to group those two. But but you're also saying, if I've heard you rightly, that there needs to be a certain amount of structure that people need to stay within. But it's not as rigid as the nine to five used to be, right? That's, I believe that. And I deal with ADHD a lot. And people with ADHD are slower to develop intrinsic motivation than others. Probably has to do with dopamine levels in their brain, has to do with genes. So we're gonna provide more regular and more frequent rewards and fade them out over time. Well, the goal is to have someone become totally intrinsically motivated, right? Well, I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't last as a professor too much longer if they stopped paying me every month. We <laughs> all need some extrinsic rewards, right? It's a balance of structure, expectations, and clarity with the flexibility to do it in a way that doesn't drive you, your coworkers, and the company mad. It's a way that enhances creativity and productivity, not these external structures uh, taking up too much of your life space. The uh, the. Last question, last question, because as always with you, uh, Steve, it's just intriguing. I could go on for hours. We might have to do a three-peat. So morph yourself 10 years forward. 
-hmm. and paint a picture of what modern well-being in the workplace looks like, what would you say? Well, could I first go out and get a degree in organizational management? I'll be back in a couple of years and answer. No. <laughs> You'll probably be back in 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. It would look like a place, a set of places where people feel proud to work there. People feel invested in the work they do because it's for a product, a common good, a piece of information or technology that gets out into the world. And they feel that their, their real life, their home life and their fun life and their exercise life and their drink after work life isn't so separate from their work life. Now, there is structure. It's, what about schooling and kids? Should kids learn to read on their own? The human brain never learned to read. We've only been reading for 6,000 years. We've been a species for 150,000. Kids need structure to learn to read. People need structure at various points in their employment to learn the skills to be part of a team. And as those skills develop and they continually develop, the more ownership, the more agency people have, the less separate their life feels from their work life feels from the rest of their life, and the more they're proud to be part of a, a unit that's bigger than themselves. That's what I would do. Absolute pleasure, as it was the last time. The hour flies by. I've made a, a ton of notes, and I just want to thank you, Steve, for your, for your time, your knowledge, your passion around uh, something that I'm really passionate about. And it's always, always a pleasure. And I cannot wait until we can. And we've just said that we're going to get on a plane and we're going to meet halfway, which is Hawaii, right? I guess so. Let's do it. <laughs> get the COVID protocols fixed and we can do it. But And it's such a pleasure to talk with you and the others at Mentimia. You're a group that takes humanity and humanization and skills and productivity seriously all together. It's a holistic goal. And that's what I'm striving for in my life is a more holistic set of objectives to integrate the personal and the professional, the science and the storytelling. So thanks for the opportunity. And um, I guess we'll have to be Hawaiian shirts, right? Compulsory. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> I got to pull mine out of the closet. <laughs> thanks so much. Been a fantastic. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Open Minded. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe. This podcast is everywhere you get your podcasts, so make sure you do that. <laughs> I don't need to tell you how, and then you'll get my new episode straight away. And if you can leave a review, tell everyone you know about it, it'd be awesome. If you could help spread the word about the show, thanks. But also, I'd love to get your feedback. You know, I'm new to this, I want to get better, and I want to know what you want to know about mental well-being. So please reach out to us, and thanks, and I'll see you all soon.